please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts and chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Acts in the New Testament. If you're using a Bible from this room, you will find Acts 17 on page 793. 793. Now, in the coming weeks, we will do a variety of topical studies and discussions. Um, But, to keep us on track, I want to start tonight by attempting to summarize the big picture of what the whole Bible is all about. So I'm going to talk about the whole Bible in like 20 minutes, I think. We're going to try. Uh, The reason is, if we have at least an idea of the basic structure of the Bible, then we will be better equipped to ask the right questions about the topics that we're going to discuss and give the right answers, which is also important. So we need to understand this book so that we can understand the world. And thankfully, the summary of the Bible is actually very simple. In fact, tonight we're going to summarize the Bible really in four words. Some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, we've done this before. And you're right, we have. Uh, But I think it's worth repeating and I think it's worth helping us to be reminded so that... As we think topically about the Bible, we'll do it on the Bible's terms and not our own. So, you have, uh, I think, a bulletin, the ability to take some notes. We'll go through the outline that's there, and you can fill in blanks as we go. And it would be very helpful for you to look at the passage with us as we work our way through this. So, in Acts chapter 17, there is one primary example of how this structure of the Bible works in one sitting. So in Acts 17, uh, let's start in verse 16, and let's let's read a little bit uh, here at the beginning so we can understand what's going on. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens... uh, Now, if if you want to understand why it would even start seemingly mid-story, it's because Paul and other missionaries had previously been in other cities, and now he had gone ahead to Athens without those other people, so he's in Athens waiting for these other missionaries. So he's waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. Paul was a Jew, so he went to the Jewish place of worship. And there were devout persons there, and he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. In verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So you get the, you get the idea that Paul is having conversations with people of all kinds of backgrounds and beliefs. Middle of verse 18, some of them said, What does this babbler wish to say? That's how they're referring to Paul. He's babbling. What does he wish to say? Others said... He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. You could say foreign religions. They said this because, the end of verse 18 tells us, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
So, so to these people in Athens, these, these Greeks, it was foreign to them that someone would rise from the dead. And yet, that's what Paul's preaching, and they find this to be very strange. So verse 19, So they took him, and they brought him to the Areopagus, uh, so their assembly where they would have these, these uh, religious discussions. And they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. In verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Uh, let's, let's read on a little bit further. So, verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along... And observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. And the inscription says, To the unknown God. And Paul tells them, What, the, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Alright, let's stop there and let's sort of summarize what's happening. Paul is very interested in having a religious discussion with other people who are also interested in having religious discussions the issue is that their religions don't line up. Paul believes one thing. They believe all kinds of other things. They're open to learning about other beliefs. And so Paul is trying to show them the truthfulness of what he believes. So this example shows us first in your notes that people are on a search for truth. There is first the search for truth. You can see there in the notes... People are seeking answers. Hopefully, as you and I have discussions in the coming weeks, both in uh, settings like this, but even as we break into small groups, I hope that you are seeking answers to life's hardest questions. I, I hope you're asking hard questions. We don't expect you to have it all figured out. We don't even have it all figured out. But we think we know where to find how to figure things out. And so that's why we want to, on purpose, seek answers with you from the Bible because we think it has the answers. But in order to be able to find the right answers, we also need to be able to ask the right questions. So uh, you notice here that these, these people, they already have questions for, for Paul, don't they? Uh, they hear what he's saying, and they're wondering, what is he talking about? What is, what is, uh, what is this that he's preaching and they even pull him aside. Can we know more about what you're saying? Uh, what you're saying is foreign to us. It's confusing. It's strange. And so they want to know more about what he means. And so we, because we believe we have the truth, need to be able to pass that truth on to other people. We need to be equipped with the right questions and the right answers for ourselves and for others. And we think that the place to get those answers is the Bible. Now, you might be thinking, man, it would be easier to have these conversations if people would just ask me, what do I believe? That's what they're doing to Paul here. Doesn't it just, wouldn't it just make it easy if somebody came up to you and said, hey, why don't you tell me about your religion? Well, that would be a, an easy invitation. You would know then that you have the freedom to share the gospel with them, right? Well, 
what what gives Paul the opportunity to do this? Like, what is he? How does he start? What is he already doing? He's he's already preaching, right? He's already having spiritual conversations with him. So it's not like he's just passive, and then they you know seek him out and hey, tell us what you believe. He is seeking people out. What he's saying sounds strange to them, and so so they invite him in to tell them more. So they are searching for truth. All people. Everybody in this room and all people in the world are searching for truth. Not all search for religion, but they're all searching for meaning in life. They're searching for answers to hard questions. We are all on a search for truth. And so Paul gives them, and this is the second thing in your notes, he gives them the source of truth, or you could even say the story of truth. And Paul summarizes the whole Bible in like Six sentences, and we're even going to summarize it in four words. So, read with me, starting in verse 24, Acts 17, 24. Here's what he proclaims to them. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like silver or gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Verse 30. Those times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. All right, four words that summarize Paul's message as he starts at the beginning and goes all the way till the end of history. He starts in verse 24 by talking about the God who made the world and everything in it. How would we summarize that in one word? Creation. Creation. The first part of this story, this source of truth, is the word creation. Paul makes clear, God made all things in heaven and on earth. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the source of all life. Anything that breathes, breathes because God gives it life and breath. God is not dependent on anyone. He is actually independent from all things. He creates all peoples. He determines where they live. So that's what he means when he says that he sets boundaries for their dwelling place. He says in verse 27 that they should, uh, he does all this so that they should seek God because they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Now, this is a little more implicit than it is explicit, but I think we can summarize from this that if people must seek God and they must feel their way toward him, it means they, are, they don't already belong to God. Well, if God created all things and yet people are separated from Him, why is that? What happened after creation? 
there was a there was a fall. Second word is the word fall. People need to seek God because they fell from him. They need to feel their way towards him because they have rebelled against him. Even though he is the source of life, in him we live and move and have our being, even though we're his offspring, we don't serve God as our father or as our creator. We were made to seek God, but how many of us actually do? Romans says that none of us do. No one seeks God. Even though all of us are indebted to God for life, we actually replace God with other objects of worship. So Romans says that we worship created things rather than the Creator. We have fallen. When Adam and Eve, the first people, rebelled against God, they passed their sinful, rebellious state onto all of us. We are all separated from God. And yet, look down at how God has decided to remedy us from this fall. Look at verse 30. There were times of ignorance that God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. There was a man whom God appointed to redeem us from the fall. So the third word of this story is the word redemption. Redemption. God appointed a man, His Son, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, to live in perfect obedience to God, because none of us did. And Paul mentions here that he gave assurance of all of this by raising Him from the dead. Which means that this man, Jesus, died. This man, Jesus was put to death in our place. And yet God raised him from the dead to defeat sin and the consequences of sin and to make sinners redeemable, to make it to where we could be brought back to God. So redemption is the third part of this big story. And so, because redemption is possible, verse 30 says that now he commands all people everywhere to repent... Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So there is coming at the end of time a day when Jesus, the perfect judge, will judge all the world. And all people everywhere will be found either to still be in our sins or to be redeemed from our sins. Those are the only two options. We are currently in our sins. We can be redeemed from those sins and be judged as righteous before God because of what Jesus did in His life and death and resurrection. And we call that restoration. That's the fourth word. Restoration. God has authority over all the earth to put it back the way it was at creation, to restore it to its original condition. And that is what he intends to do at the end. He will bring about a final judgment of sin and then restore his people to a new creation. And so therefore he calls all people to repent. That is to turn from sin and to trust Christ completely so that we can experience that restoration and that assurance and be spared from that judgment. Now that's the story of truth. That's the story of the Bible. 
in four words. That's the structure of the whole thing. Okay? Now, you'll notice at, at the end of this, what we'll call the summary of truth in your notes. The summary of truth. Do all people think this is great news? Let's look. Verse, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Let's be honest. Do some of us not share the gospel because we're afraid of being mocked? I think probably so. I know that's true for me. And we can't assure ourselves that it will never happen because it happened even to the greatest preachers in the world. Paul being one of them. He was mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. So, so some, some do reject. Some who we will share the gospel with will reject. Some who we tell the story of the Bible to will reject. Some of you even now in this room who are hearing what the Bible is all about will reject it. Some of you might be curious by what you're hearing. Plenty of people are. I want to hear more about this. That was some of the reaction that Paul got. Verse 34, some men joined and believed. And then he names uh, some of those men and women who did so. And yet it's not for us to determine who those are going to be. We simply are told to share this story. Now that is, that is one example of the structure of the whole Bible. What I'd like to do uh, as quickly as possible, and Jonathan, if you'll help me go through some of the slides on here, would be to show you this structure through the whole Bible. Are you ready? Okay. Start in Genesis. And God in the Bible is trying to reveal himself. He's trying to make himself known. The first thing we read about in Genesis is that God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we have in Genesis the story of creation. You get to Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and the serpent, and they fall, they sin, they rebel. And yet, even in that sin, God promises redemption, doesn't he? He promises that there will be a descendant of Eve who will crush the head of the serpent and redeem his people. So that promise is there. One way that redemption is pictured is in the book of Exodus, when Moses leads the Israelite people out of slavery in Egypt, and he, he brings them out, doesn't he? He redeems them. And all throughout the Old Testament, that's the main picture of redemption. And then, once they are on their way to the land, what does God give them? A written law. Why does he give them the law? Because he wants to show them what, it's, what it would be like if they actually lived in a restored way in the new land. So creation, fall, redemption, restoration, they're in the first five books. Okay. Next slide. They get to the land. They conquer the land, and when they get there, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden. Remember how it's talked about the promised land? It's lush, it's plenteous, it's flowing with milk and honey. It's almost like they're in the garden all over again. It's like a new creation, except you get to Judges, and all the judges uh, are about these people who try to be king even though they're not king. And because Israel has no king, everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Does that ever work? No. So they're continually falling. There's a cycle of continual fall and rebellion until you get to the book of Ruth. And Ruth is redeemed. And there's a picture of redemption in, from the fall in the book of Ruth even during the time of Judges. You move on to the book of Samuel. And Samuel is like a new priest. And this priesthood is like the creation of a new element where people are represented to God and God to them. But then you read about Eli's wicked sons who are terrible priests and they represent like a new fall. So even the priesthood now, even the people who are supposed to be most godly are fallen. 
And even the ark of God is captured by the Philistines. And it looks like God's people are defeated forever because God's presence is taken from them. And yet even the Philistine God falls on his face before the ark of the covenant. And God allows his presence to go back with Israel as a picture of redemption. Well, then the people are like, well, this priesthood thing didn't work, so now we need a king. So who do they set up as king? Saul. Saul starts out for five chapters, and it's kind of like, this guy could be a really good king. And then he disobeys the Lord. So he falls. He needs to be redeemed. Who's the king who's going to redeem Saul's line? David. David is set up, and David leads what looks to be like a redemption of Israel. And Israel is restored, and, and the temple is created. God is dwelling with his people through the temple uh, in, in both uh, David's, David's life, and then eventually it's built in, uh, under King Solomon. But even David himself, did he have a fall? He did, right? With Bathsheba, uh, the sin with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. And, and then Solomon is forced to, um, uh, Solomon takes up for David after his death. Solomon's reign is great, it's like a new creation until he falls by committing adultery again with multiple wives. And then the whole rest of Israel's history, really in the Old Testament, is just this continual fall until they eventually are exiled and the kingdom itself is divided. So then you read in the prophets. All right, In the prophets you have some of these really long books that are commenting about Israel's history. And then you have some really short books also commenting about Israel's history. Well, if they're commenting about their history, what's their history? Creation, fall, redemption. Restoration, right? It's just one continual history. Then you have some of these other books called writings where in Psalms, for example, they're singing about their history. Uh, Solomon has these writings where he's teaching about life. How, how do you live a life based on the history that God has revealed? You even have, that, uh, have an individual picture of it in the book of Job. You have the people, because they're in exile, mourning. Jeremiah shows that in Lamentations. They're even in exile and about to be annihilated, but in Esther they're preserved. Daniel writes about how the exile will continue until certain other kings eventually reign so they can be restored from exile. The return from exile actually happens in Ezra and Nehemiah, and the city is rebuilt, and it's like they're restored to the land. And then, and then Chronicles tells us about the whole history, just repeats it, from Adam to the exile. And then you come to the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's a person who comes to actually accomplish redemption. Who is that? Jesus. So in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have Jesus. And Jesus is like a brand new creation. There's no one ever like him. He himself, through his own life, overcomes the fall, the curse. He fulfills God's law. He speaks like a prophet. He represents like a priest. He rules like a king. He promises that God will indwell his people. He actually secures redemption for his people through his sacrificial death, and then he defeats sin and death by actually rising from the dead. And then the rest of the New Testament actually shows us how God intends to redeem people through his church. And the church is for all the nations, including the Jews. So we think gathering like this is important as a way to show people what redemption is like And then finally you get to Revelation where everything is restored into a new creation the way it was intended to be. Now, look back at your notes. Let's let's ask the question, why on earth is that important? How on earth is that possibly helpful? Four quick things. Here we go. This is helpful because it helps us to grab the big picture of biblical history. If, if If you're confused about the details of Scripture when you read it, 
Remind yourself of the big picture, and a lot of times the details get cleared up. Here's a second reason. It helps us to explain key elements of the gospel. So when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, do you have to tell them everything that happened in the Bible? No, you, you don't. In fact, you shouldn't. But if you can keep in mind those key things, it will remind you that there is a God. We've rebelled against Him. We need to be redeemed back to Him. Christ came to win that for us so that we can be restored to Christ, and you've explained the gospel to somebody. Here's the third thing. This structure helps us to recognize our main problem, and it points to our main solution. So maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I've got problems with friends, I've got problems with relationships, I've got problems with family, I've got problems at school, I've got personal problems that I don't want anybody to know about. Let me tell you something. Your biggest problem is not your best friend or your mom and dad or your brother or sister or your grades or, or your athletic uh, prowess or lack thereof or any of that, okay? Your biggest problem is that you are a sinner before God. And that is far bigger than any other problem you will face. The reason you have problems, the reason you don't have problems in other areas, is because we have rebelled against God. And our biggest problem is that we deserve to go to hell because of those sins. So, so reminding ourselves of this, of this structure points us to the main solution for our main problems. And then lastly, knowing this structure helps us evaluate the world. So we see the world through the perspective of God. It helps us evaluate the world and the church and our lives from God's perspective. We want to have God's perspective on everything that we face in this life. And this is the structure that will help us to do that. So with all the discussions we're going to have tonight and the rest of the year, I want us to keep this structure in mind to, to understand that this is why we focus on the Bible the way that we do. We think this is what really is going to give us any sort of helpful information on any of the topics that we deal with. So, would you pray with me as we break into groups? Father, thank you for what Scripture is about. Thank you that we can, as best we know how, try to make sense of it. Uh, Lord, we need things simplified, so thank you for even how your Word is structured in such a way that we can remember what it's all about with just a few simple words. And I pray we won't just know what it's about, but that you'll use these truths to help us evaluate our own lives, our own uh, situations, and, and our own questions. And Lord, we pray we'll get our answers from your word. Thank you for these reminders. In Jesus' name, amen.